This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 1st, 2023. I'm Scott Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, BC releases its housing naughty list. By-elections have been called, and we just have like a potpourri of China slash David Johnston stories. Uh, Maybe a quiet start to a quiet summer. Who knows? We've gotten a ton of sun, and I just keep looking at my garden, hoping it's going to rain. Patreon.com slash Politicoast. I would say so I can afford my water bill, but we don't have water meters in this province, so I don't know. So we can keep the show running. That's what it's actually for. Let's start here in BC. The uh, It's like almost not even a story, but the like crisis that is affordability in housing in this province, we're moving like an inch closer to doing something about it in that we have identified, or at least the province and our housing minister, have identified municipalities that need to meet targets that are yet to be set. Yeah, so back to the fall when the Housing uh, Supply Act was released, there's a bunch of stuff in there, or passed, not released, releasing act. Um, back when it was passed, there was a bunch of stuff in there about how, oh, you know, the minister can designate certain uh, municipalities or order reports about certain municipalities and like impl- and from there then go in and take steps if needed to correct the housing supply situation and here we are more than half a year later and we're starting to get the list of that making the list is an assortment of Municipalities across Metro Van, the Capital Region, and Kamloops. We have Abbotsford, Delta, the City of Kamloops, the District of North Vancouver, the District of Oak Bay, Port Moody, the District of Saanich, the City of Vancouver, the City of Victoria, and the District of West Vancouver. Not on that list are larger municipalities like Richmond, Surrey, Burnaby, and Kelowna, uh, but you know, quite still quite a few in Metro Van and like the core of the capital region, less Esquimalt. Yeah, and this is just the first batch. There's going to be a group of eight to ten more selected notified in the latter half of the year. So, like, I fully expect we'll be seeing a bunch of those, you know, bigger municipalities that didn't make this list when that comes around. Yeah, and the province didn't frame this as a these are the naughty municipalities that haven't built enough housing. These are, they're like priority communities to encourage more work to be done. And so they released a, right. But like if an economic criteria upon which that they made this totally impartially, and this is not political at all, Scott, (laughs) there may be a little protesting too much there. Um, But like, I mean, fundamentally it is an odd list because you know, if things were going great and they were these house these municipalities were producing enough housing to not trigger any of these uh criteria, then they would be doing a good job and hence not naughty. Yeah. The criteria they used, I'm not gonna run through everything in here, but you can find the link in our show notes, bases a lot of weight on the availability of right housing supply. So this is things like dwelling to population ratio. Uh, density to reach affordability, housing for workers and families, and proximity to amenities. Then 20% more goes to urgent housing needs. This is homelessness and social housing waitlist. And finally, urban municipalities get a 10% boost over rural municipalities. Right. So like Vanderhoof just wasn't probably going to be on the list just for that. Yeah. Or I mean, unless things get really bad there. Yeah. And maybe that's why Penticton, for example, that the premier has gone to bat against a few times in the past, didn't make the list. I'm I'm really curious to see what comes out for the targets. We'll have to come back to this then, because right now this is just a list that makes you go, okay. Uh, they have said they're going to consult with the municipalities about 
what the numbers need to be, even though all of these municipalities have been required to release housing needs reports, so the numbers should be in their own public record. I mean, unless the province disagrees with those and thinks they should be higher, but in either case, God, this is a slow process. Yeah, it really is. And like, it doesn't have to be. Like, this is the sort of list someone should probably whip up, you know, over a a very short amount of time. You know, this is, what, like a day's work to, like, collect, to, like, figure out the criteria and, like, collect the data and, like, plug it into an Excel sheet. Like, it actually made a few of those. Like, ground story, multifamily housing ratio. Like, okay, that, that's going to take a little bit of time to figure, like, that out because there might not be an easy spot for that. But, like, by and large, it's not like a eight-month process to uh, figure out this list here where it needn't be. Yeah, and it's it ends up giving us a conveniently diverse enough list where, you know, you have the city of Vancouver and Victoria and Saanich, but then you also have Oak Bay, who BC Today notified me had approved a grand total of, I think, 27 units last year, which is... Yeah, so like clear laggards and like clear villains in the, the housing crisis on that front. I mean, Oak Bay is only 18,000 people. It is the smallest municipality in this list. Uh, the rest, except for Vancouver, all range between like 30 or 40,000 and like 110 or 120,000. Like even Saanich is only 120,000. And then Vancouver is up there at 675. So a lot of like the midsize communities in the metro is getting flagged and a lot of work to be done in all of these for sure and yeah definitely for people who follow housing like places like west van and district north van and port moody have been identified in the past by many people as very difficult and refusing to take seriously the housing crisis well uh so yeah like you said not a surprise i guess i just wish we had a like who who are the good municipalities? Can can we get up to ten? I mean, are, are there like... good municipalities? Like Vancouver's probably like, Vancouver and Victoria have probably done like some of the most work towards getting things working, but like both of those are horribly insufficient compared to what the actual need is. And then you have a bunch of places that like don't even think it's a problem to be addressed, like Oak Bay. There are places doing lots of different things. The city of Vancouver is so fascinating to talk about housing policy, right? It's why Canby Report spun off and we spend so much time on that. Uh, they are simultaneously doing so much and so little that you can use it as the poster child or the whipping boy, depending on what day of the week you want to use it for. But there are other municipalities, right? Like City of North Van is doing some things. New West is doing some things. Even Burnaby is taking on a number of different approaches since... Uh, Mike Hurley became mayor. Yeah, like they, they I don't think have, anyone like, is like some stuff, but like there, there isn't one that's like checked off all of like the good housing policy things. Or <laughs> housing come, is solved in yeah, come close. Like Preston. I don't know. It's not like uh, I don't know. Prince Rupert has just like an amazing housing policy that it like blows every other city in the province out of the water. It's just not the case. Well, and part of that is. The issues transcend every one municipality, right? If somehow any one municipality in Metro Van gets housing under control, everyone's just moving there and making it more expensive. And so it does need this provincial leadership, which we're finally starting to see. Uh, and it's got it slow. But let's talk about the very distant chance there could be changes in provincial leadership as writs have been issued for two by-elections in Langford, Juan de Fuca, and Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. They will be holding uh, the polls on January 20... Uh, they will be holding their polls on Saturday, June 24th. Candidates you have until June 3rd, Saturday, to get your papers in. Uh, and so far, I saw the Greens, Conservatives uh, have theirs in, and others. Uh, the other main parties need to get on it. So, Vancouver Mount Pleasant, this is a by-election to replace Melanie Mark, who resigned last year for personal reasons uh, in quite a strong statement she gave condemning everything about how 
frustrated she is about unable to uh, being unable to affect the changes she wants. This is the mo- one of the most or- one of the two most orange ridings in the province. Yeah, so like in the famous 2001 election when the liberals just swept the entire province, Vancouver Mount Pleasant stayed NDP. It was one of the only two. And since then, the NDP not only win the plurality of the vote, they win sizable majorities of it. Yeah, in 2020, it went 67% NDP, 20% Green, and 13% to then BC Liberals. The NDP have nominated Joan Phillip, an Indigenous rights leader and climate activist, to replace Melanie Mark as unless something wild happens, Philip is going to be the next... Short of the candidate having a heart attack, like Joan Phillips is the next uh, MLA for Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Uh, The BC United have nominated Jackie Lee, a Richmond business owner. The Greens have nominated Wendy Hako, who also ran in the Vancouver Kilchena by-election against Kevin Falcon, an emergency management expert. And the BC Conservatives have already nominated Karen Litsky, uh, a past People's Party candidate, a dietitian, and someone who really hates the BCTF as far as I can tell. She like brags in her bio about launching a lawsuit to try to get the legal parents, the legal rights of parents recognized between in a teachers union and government litigation. Uh, and she has written reports on how teachers' unions destroy the quality of public schools. So, like, peak BC Conservative candidate there. Yes. And has even less chance than the non-existent chance the BC United has. Yeah. In Langford, Juan de Fuca, John Horgan retired, as we know for many reasons. Uh, this has been held by the NDP as well. For as long as it has been a constituency of that name, and even the one before it, they lost it in 2001, though, during that sweep we mentioned. Uh, very similarly, like within the margin of error in 2020, it went 68% NDP, 17% Green, and 15% Liberal. So, though that was John Horgan's ride, like the you probably knocked a few points off of uh, that for like non leadership candidates. So maybe Ravi Parmar will take it, the NDP's candidate, will take it with only high 50s support if he's unlucky. Um, Ravi Parmar has been a school trustee, I believe, in the Victoria School District. He was also in the Office of the Minister of Jobs, Economic Development, and Innovation. He's been basically a government aide in a number of different offices since the NDP have been elected. Oh, sorry, he's in the Souk School District. Um, he's been a constitu- constituency assistant to John Horgan, a constituency assistant to Alana Popham. Um, long-time NDP kind of guy. And I, and I believe widely respected within the party apparatus. I don't think there's any controversy there. But maybe I'm missing something. Uh, The BC United have nominated Elena Lawson, a co-founder of the Children's Autism Federation of BC. I know the BC Liberals and now BC United have spent a lot of time talking about changes around autism, and some of which were put on hold because of how uh, rough it was going for families. And so this is an interesting pick and one that highlights that They've really managed to capture that issue in many ways and gotten some support in those core communities. Uh, The Greens have nominated Camille Curry, who headed up a group called BC Healthcare Matters. And the BC Conservatives have found the appropriately named person, Mike Harris, to run there. Not Ontario's Mike Harris. This one's like a realtor who moved from Langley. Uh, Different Conservative Mike Harris. Probably believes a lot of the same things, though. So, uh, anyway, I guess we'll mention when Parmar and Philip become MLAs. Um, I think the thing to watch will be whether the Greens can pick up any additional support, whether BC United can try to find any legs here, but neither of these are on the path to a majority BC United government, I can't imagine. 
No, not at all. I, I miss fun by elections. We haven't had a one in a while. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah, there's just no tension here or anything. We can, everyone can guess the outcome well ahead of it. It's not even like the government is like so wildly unpopular that uh there's a potential upset on these normally safe seats. It's, it it is just about as boring as it can be. I, I admittedly had even forgotten that my writing, Benjamin Mount Pleasant, even had the by election going on. Like that's how much of a, a non event this is. Maybe we'll uh have a better luck guessing Maybe it'll be more interesting to see if turnout can even break like twenty percent in these. But that'll be the real challenge for the BCNDP is actually making sure their members remember to vote. Speaking of voting, let's turn our attention briefly to Alberta, just because I'm self-indulgent and from there. And we had a great episode, I thought, a couple weeks ago with Dave Cornway previewing the Alberta election, and the results are in and unsurprisingly conservatives could win a majority government in alberta did you believe it scott <laughs> well i mean D daniel smith gave me some reasons to doubt that but uh no they, they stuck with the uh tried and true uh, alberta result of a majority conservative government now it is the largest opposition that's ever been returned in alberta history with a sizable contingent of ndp MLAs, I think the final count is still pending a couple recounts in Calgary where one candidate won by like seven votes on election night. But overall, the NDP got more votes than they did in 2015. I think they, or at least a higher percentage, they were up to 42, 43% this round, whereas they were only at 40% when they took their majority government. Uh, but facing a united conservative government, they uh, fell who, you know, the Conservatives took a majority of the vote. This election under First Past the Post actually delivered a rare proportional result. Almost like pretty close, within a couple percents. I did the numbers on election night, and I remember seeing like it's 55% of the seats to 53% of the vote or something close like yeah. that. Yeah, and like it wasn't all that far off if just a few writings had... Uh had a few votes go the other way and someone uh, tallied it up and it was something like, was it less than 2000 votes in the right ridings would have flipped the results in terms of seats. Yeah. And that's one of those things that people brought up and then point at like, Oh look, there's a couple hundred people voted for the green party here or the, you know, smoking remains of the Alberta party got a couple hundred votes in that seat. And that meant that, if they'd have gone NDP, they would have won. And I'm like, you're scraping the bottom of the uh, strategic vote barrel with those arguments this time. Like, turnout was 62%, down 5% from the previous election in Alberta. And like, uh, so there's lots of people who you could have just turned out easier than like getting the last diehard Alberta Party supporter to vote for you. Yeah, for sure. And, um, this was the election that like really cemented Alberta kind of as a two-party uh, system. I mean, future's always unwritten, but like it's it is like fifty-two per, well fifty-three percent rounded to forty-four percent round. Like that does not leave a lot of room for any of the other parties. So, like, like vote spin was not a sizable thing here at all. And like you said, like um. Turnout matters, and that can always swamp those effects. And uh, you know, until we have mandatory voting, like there really isn't vote splitting. It's you just got more votes than the other person. And uh... yeah, it's it's an interesting era in Alberta, right? Because for so long the oppositions were so small and fragmented. Like you had a few liberals or a few NDP members, uh, and then you had a period where you finally got like two conservative parties. Um, but like, like I discussed with Dave a couple weeks ago, like Alberta's modern history is wildly tumultuous. They have not had a premier win two elections since Klein. <laughs> like it's been over 20 years. 
So yeah, and I, I'm gonna make a guess here that uh, that is not going to be broken by Danielle Smith. Yeah, she seems like a chaos. Well, she is a chaos agent who is believes some wacky things. Uh, they didn't, you know, prevent her from winning the election, but there's definitely like still a split within that party. I think well, the, there was, uh, the Take Back Alberta party kooks are stronger now. Yeah, and, have and more was, MLAs returned, but. And apparently, you know, there, it was being said that, oh, you know, don't worry, you can vote for the uh, the party. We're going to turf Danielle Smith anyway. Like, that was something that was apparently, like, floating out in the ether by a bunch of uh, people relate, related to the party and whatnot. So, like, that's never a good sign, too, when part of the pitch to vote for uh, the party is that you're going to force a leadership contest after you win. But like, but at least they won't raise the corporate income tax rate. Like, I don't know if they're actually going to be able. To, those people are going to be able to pull it off. But like the mere fact that that was being talked about says there's trouble. Victory soothes a lot of wounds for a little while, at least. Although, but yeah. like yeah, but in Alberta's case, that doesn't tend to soothe them long. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating result again, right? Like. Alberta's kind of gotten itself into the place BC was in the late 70s and 80s, where the NDP had won one breakthrough election on a divided right wing, and then the right reunites, and the NDP actually does better. Like After Barrett's win, there are a couple elections that the BC NDP outdid their 1972 result, but because their, op- their opponents were united... They couldn't win, and that might be where Alberta is right now um, until the next schism, or which is what or, it took in BC, yeah. or, uh, or they the just Alberta, collapse entirely. Yeah, or the NDP get lucky and are able to harness uh, the first past the post. Uh, it's unique features to their advantage. Like 1996 BC. Yes. And like that, could, there, that very well could have been the outcome here. Yeah, and there's a good chance of that, right? Alberta's population is shifting in the same way as BC has to become more urban, more diverse, uh, and many of them are more sympathetic to the NDP in that way. Uh, and they just need to get that last little bit. Now, there needs to be some heavy soul-searching still on the part of the NDP the Alberta NDP's leadership in terms of strategy, because in many ways, this was the like, we are going to moderate ourselves so hard, we are going to get as many former progressive conservatives to endorse us as possible and try and be not scary enough to win Calgary. And like, they did get a majority of the vote in Calgary, and they got a good number of seats, but it's like, they're non-existent outside of the two cores, although they picked up the Banff seat and one in Lethbridge. Yeah, though I'm like I'm not sure that's the right framing. Like yeah, the the fact that they moderated just has to do with the realities of what Alberta politics is like. Uh, you know, you expect uh parties in a competitive uh two party system to kind of move towards that. Um the uh, <clears throat> so like that's unsurprising on there. I think the bigger problem and this is the one I've heard that's been voiced quite a bit is the NDP ran very much kind of against Danielle Smith without doing as much to kind of put a reason to vote for the NDP and kind of ran away from their record a bit on some stuff. Like it just overall um, you know, tweak a few things here and there and you probably get a a, a, bet, a closer result at the very least or potentially flip those uh few thousand votes like yeah i can't tell you what the alberta ndp ran on besides we will maintain the lowest corporate tax rate uh we won't raise personal income taxes we won't privatize health care which is like okay but what will you do to fix it so it's not that they needed to run hard left even. They could have just had some of the affordability promises that the BC NDP had in 2017. Like, what are you going to do about housing costs, which yeah, are like pick, very pick one 
big thing and hey no hey this is what you get yeah and so here we are both leaders are still leading their parties i struggle to see how rachel notley stays on because even if well like you know she has support in the party and even if she has you know the desire to it's just been a long time since she became leader yeah although uh i mean i don't know the uh internal workings of the alberta ndp but like is there a, a natural successor waiting in the caucus at all or there's not a specific one but there's at least a handful of talented MLAs. There's people like Joe Cece, who's a Calgary MLA, former cabinet minister, former city councillor, who'd be pretty popular. Uh, there's people like Shannon Phillips, former health minister, who's in Lethbridge. Uh, there's a bunch of talented people in Edmonton. Uh, Janet Irwin would be more on the left out of there. Like Because they ha- formed government, they have people with serious experience. Uh, which isn't something many opposition parties can say. Um, I don't know who would be the front runner, but there was definitely enough on the bench that they could have a serious leadership contest. Right. That could produce some, I don't know if it would produce someone better, but like the BCNDP went through a whole bunch of leaders in, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean... The, and generally the sat that- around the same amount percentage-wise. <laughs> Yeah, although I believe um, Rachel Notley's polling generally outperforms the NDPs uh, in terms of favorability, so it might not be the, so. Sorry, cut, cut that, Chesley. So you may have the case where you have like an above replacement leader in place, and it's not necessarily going to be easy to repeat that. Sure, but. She's been leader since 2014. She's been an MLA since 2008. Like she's still only 59, so it's not like an she's too old thing, but just like you know, you win an election in 2015, you lose in 2019, you lose in 2023. Are you going to fight it in 2027 so you can be premier until 2031 like we're looking so far into the future that it's like if you want to build the ndp alberta ndp into something stronger to contest the next election you're either committing for a long period of time or now is a pretty good time to start making that move or very soon maybe the election night you didn't want to do it Uh, it's also worth noting like the one of the past leaders of the alberta ndp was grant notley and her dad, uh, and he led it for, uh, what was this, like, and he led the party for 16 years. So, I guess there's precedent yeah, like, for her leading it for a long time, and he died and in office, like, but it really becomes the Notley NDP, the Notley Democratic Party, if it's just the two of them having led it for the majority of its existence. Yeah. I mean, you also have, like, precedents, like... Um... Andrea Horvath, which is, you know, not a great one because she never won. But, uh, you know, the NDP like to hold on to their leaders longer than uh, other parties do. I mean, they also knifed Mulcair in the back in Edmonton. So things could go lots of different ways. Uh. I mean, well, Mulcair gave them a better result than uh, the subsequent leaders being able to in terms of seat counts. Let's pivot the discussion a little daniel smith as the elected premier and not just kind of assumed the office what does that mean for you know there's kind of two main relations number one with ottawa it's going to remain as spicy as it would have been even though like any premier is naturally going to put on some bluster against any prime minister but i think more interestingly is the bc alberta relations Maybe. I mean, like, at this point, the, um, like, the federal government's taking over Trans Mountain, like, it's, uh, I mean, construction's not finished and has some difficulties, but, like, politically speaking, it's pretty much a done deal on that, and, like, that was the main point of contention, and, like, I, you know, I'll point out the lowest, uh, 
point for BC Alberta relations happened when Rachel Notley was premier? The lowest point in contemporary history. I'm sure we could go back farther. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who knows? Like maybe in like 1892, some like Albertans tried to invade BC or something. But before it was a province, Scott. Know your history. <laughs> yeah, but like that's my point. Is like there could be some like thing like very early on was like wasn't even a full province and just a territory and whatnot. Um, I think one of the things we see the sharpest divide right now between BC and Alberta is on. Uh, the toxic drug supply and the response to that. Like, right. language like, has been shifting a little bit in BC, but the Alberta approach has been framed as the Alberta model and is like explicitly different than harm reduction approaches being taken in BC and, you know, corresponds very closely with many of the things uh, Pierre Polyev wants to talk about in terms of Canada is broken. Yeah. So, like, you will, I mean, you will see a different policy course being charted by the two provinces because. I mean, one's run by New Democrats and the other's run by conservatives and not a particularly moderate one at that. But, I mean, in terms of actual, like, points where things aren't just having, like, different policies within their respective provinces, but actually, you know, contesting things of, uh, you know, cross-border significance that, like, go at kind of the nature of the Federation – I don't see there being as much on the horizon as there was um, during the whole, you know, pipelines and wine brouhaha that happened uh, with uh, Notley and Horgan. Uh, and to the extent there is going to be federalism fights, all of those ones are going to be with Ottawa. And, you know, BC's probably not going to be back in Alberta in some of those. But you know, at best, this is going to be oh, and BC and or BC Premier uh, John Horgan voices support for whatever at like the bottom line of the news story, and it's not going to be uh, you know a point. BC Premier David Eby. Did I say John Horgan? You did. Horse of habit. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like that's the but you know the BC Premier is going to have like a one line as like uh, they. You know, it reiterate the support for whatever side, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, like, the fireworks are going to be between Edmonton and Ottawa, not Edmonton and Victoria. Until Daniel Smith takes up that, like, wacky Frontier Center for Public Policy report that said Alberta should, like, annex a straight line of territory to get it to the coast so they don't have to fight with BC to build more pipelines. Yeah. I don't think they're that. <gasps> Uh, I should never. I, say I, I like to hope there are sensible enough voices around her to tell her, "No, we cannot do that." Yeah, Danny. But like, it, where I think there's going to be fights is over stuff like the proposal for Alberta to establish its own pension fund and leave CPP, which is like just going to be an administrative nightmare for anyone who like warts part of their career in that province and then moves. Although even a lot of that stuff was kind of shelved during the election and the yeah, way like, the UCP ran was more of a like we're happy to have childcare. We got a childcare deal. We're happy to like... But didn't Smith say like, we're, I'm not going to talk about this during the election. I won't tell yeah. just like, okay. Yeah, who knows what she's going to do Rather than next. holding her feet to the fire on that. Yeah. Which also like, weird decision by the NDP not to go after that one. And the press, well, I guess she didn't do much uh, debates or like public. Yeah, it was a head in the sand kind of approach strategy for the UCP there. And they're fine like, to lose seats yeah. as long as they keep government. And like they're also talking about like establishing their own provincial police force, which, hey, then again, BC's uh, contemplating the same. So that's actually going to be a point of contention and maybe from point for operation. And I guess my only final thoughts are, you know, where does this, I think we know where like the federal conservatives are going under Polyev, but I don't know. Yeah, like know I don't if... think you read, read a huge amount into that because like, okay, the conservatives are going to win Alberta. Like we already know that. That's kind hey, of this does tell me that like the, the three letters NDP aren't poison in 
Alberta politics anymore. And I know Alberta NDP is different than federal NDP, but once you can break that not open to let them vote provincially, they might yeah. just be a little bit more open to it federally. Maybe, but sometimes. like... I don't know. It's tough, though, because like, Rachel Notley had to like go out of her way to signal that like she was above and beyond uh, above and beyond everything else in Alberta who puts Alberta's interests first and and Jagmeet Singh, Singh is never going to do that. Well, and he he never can do that. Yeah, really. exactly. Well, and he also like shut the fuck up intelligently for the entire election. He didn't say a single word about Alberta for the last couple months because Yeah, just that knew. would have cost them votes. <laughs> um but the party that's trying to figure out what to do with itself is BC United, and I don't know if they'll take lessons from this or not. I mean, the electorates are very different in many ways. Um, but, you know, we've seen in the distant past movements in Alberta come and guide BC, but that like social credit, although they always adopt a more a BC version, which becomes quite different. like in many ways, wacky, wacky Bennett was quite different than Bible Bill, thankfully. Yeah, and there were some, like, pretty uh, weird things in, like, the original version of Social Credit. A lot of anti-Semitism. Well, I, I was thinking about, like, the nonsensical economic theories. Uh, in the anti-Semitism. <laughs> yes, both. That, like, didn't necessarily make as much of their way over to the the bc version so there you have it alberta never bet against blue finally let's look at ottawa following up on the state of david johnston's report uh we have just a handful of stories coming out i want to start with just like trust in him because that is uh, not very high, according to Parliament or polling, <laughs> or anyone whose name doesn't rhyme with uh, Mustin Mudo. Yeah, so uh, in the wake of David Johnson's report, Angus Reid has done uh, a poll on it, which was uh, released earlier this week. I mean, it, it says about what you would expect, that based off of the... Uh, coverage to date a lot of people don't think uh david johnston was the uh right choice to uh lead the investigation uh so top line number is there 44 percent wrong choice 22 percent right choice with 35 not sure or can't say yeah no we'll link the poll in the show notes i'm just googling there's also a leger poll that confirms the large uh overarching numbers like People are not impressed with how the Trudeau government has handled this. Most people think a public inquiry is probably the best approach to come. Uh, I don't like some of the ways Angus Reid phrased these questions, just in terms of trying to get unbiased answers, but because that's just always going to be difficult. Um, but like the Leger poll finds largely the same things. Like people uh, are pretty pessimistic and it's and it's a very partisan response if you're liberals you're like maybe on the fence or like some liberals are like yeah he's he's doing a great job and just as many are like eh, this is not going great uh and if you're yeah, so a like, conservative you are mad yeah um so like the liberals were the only party uh whose supporters were surveyed that uh more of them thought he was the right choice than the wrong choice um that case, 45 to 19, uh, with 30 sits unsure. Conservatives just lost up against them, more or less, with 72% to 8. Uh, NDP, 32%. Wrong choice to 24%. Right choice. And the block with 51% wrong to 6% right. And nearly half their supporters at 42%. Just not sure. Yeah, and most of the questions break down similarly partisan like the liberals are the softest support but even they aren't like overwhelmingly impressed um that meant well similar relate 
Relatedly, there's also a uh, question in there about uh, whether or not the government has been transparent or evasive. Uh, the liberals are pretty much evenly split, 35, 32, 33, for transparent, evasive, and not sure uh, on that. Uh, conservatives and bloc strongly feeling they're not transparent. And the NDP kind of split between the uh, evasive and unsure with each at 41% and uh, the government has been transparent in 19. And like the overall numbers, 57% think the government has been evasive to a mere 16 that think it's been transparent. It's like trust in the government is not high here at all. And the same goes for when you look at uh, the question of are you confident in the government's ability to, or yeah, are you confident in the Canadian government to combat election interference in future elections, which um, more than half of Canadians either say uh, not confident at all or um, not really confident. So total 63% on that uh, to 37, which... I think is actually the most important thing in all of this. We were talking a bit last week about kind of the problems with how the Johnson report has been received and kind of the fact that they didn't steer clear of the obvious issues with its credibility. And like, this is the thing that's actually going to be the most long-term damaging from it. And that, you know, irresponsible government would be working its ass off to try and correct rather than, seeming to be more evasive every time they open their mouth on it. Well, and at this uh, point, there's no route back to uh, credibility for David Johnston, unfortunately for him and the Liberals. Uh, as you know, we saw in Parliament, the NDP brought forward a successful opposition motion to call on him to resign as the special rapporteur, uh, and that passed with everyone but the Liberals voting for it. I didn't look at the exact vote, but it was a pretty clear, uh, overwhelming call. I actually don't know how the Greens voted. Uh, didn't make a difference. Yeah. But so, you yeah, know. like basically everyone but liberal partisans have. And David Johnston. Yes. Which, if you listen to the conservatives, one and the same, but uh, it's not actually the case. But yeah, basically, um, everyone that doesn't have like a direct stake in David Johnston being. Um, someone to trust uh, has lost trust in him on this particular aspect. Um, and like that kind of goes back to what we were talking last week. Like ultimately, like there's, you can't really solve this problem as long as David Johnston is still the point man on all of this. And I don't know, hopefully either the government or David Johnston will uh, actually read the writing on the wall and do something about it. But well, Man, at this I, point, I'm not hopeful about it. Like, I get the hesitation in his mind to the idea of, like, I need to stick with this because if any, and it's the same argument against the public inquiry he made, or at least in part, of like restarting this process from zero with someone getting up to speed with everything he spent the last couple months on is just going to be a waste of time when he's already done all this. But at this point, like, if you don't have the, uh, like, it's become a partisan issue because of him. And he doesn't have to like that for it to still be true. And, you know, he can go to his grave saying he's impartial. But, you know, the public's like, not with him. The other parties aren't with him. And at this point, yeah, get someone who they can all agree on. I don't know if Pierre Polyev will be happy with anyone. And maybe that's its own problem. But at then least it get... Pierre Polyev's I, yeah, problem, not the government's At problem. least get someone that Jagmeet Singh can get on board with because he's at least approaching this as I'm willing to read the reports and do the work on this and take this seriously. But I also, you know, they raised the issue in Parliament of needing him to resign. So here we are. Not that they're actually showing any signs of playing hardball with it because earlier this week, uh, Singh said he's not going to force an election until confidence in the electoral system is restored. Which, like, on one hand, I get right like we were just talking about how the public ha does not feel confident in the ability of the government to combat foreign interference and like that's going into election with that still being the state of affairs is you know 
pretty damaging and potentially catastrophic. Like, at this moment, the thing that, the scenario that I can see leading to, like, a Canadian January 6th runs right through that. Um, but that said, like, this is the one bit of leverage the NDP really have, and, like, ruling it out uh, up front doesn't uh, necessarily give you a strong hand to go into trying to push the government to do the right thing on this. Like, I, I that's, I think, kind of the problem, is, like, nobody feels the NDP is willing to play hardball on pretty much anything. So I think it's... A- it's wrong to say their only tool is an election and a confidence vote. Like this is still a minority government where the liberals have an agenda that they want to pass. And there's a bunch of things that aren't confidence votes that the NDP can tie up and can delay. So there's a series of bills coming forward. They've announced that the uh, House of Commons is going to meet until midnight every day until they rise for the summer to try and get them all passed. But there are so many procedural tools that the uh, opposition parties can pull in a situation where the government doesn't have the votes to, you know, do time allocation and shit. The NDP have tools in their quiver, have arrows in their quiver, so to say, that fall short and of calling an election. So I think they can push and hold it. Uh, I'm not clear what they actually are willing to do in Parliament, if anything. (laughs) So it might be they divide them as separate issues anyway. Um, Like overall, I don't think their performance has been terrible on this issue, uh, especially recently in terms of trying to play it smart and move the issue forward and try and focus on it in a like not hyper partisan way, but actually try and at least appear to be focused on the core substance which I think is the for the best. and Yeah, I mean, it would be better if, like, all the parties were at least taking that approach. Well, and, like, a liberal partisan could make the argument that they are, but it's harder, it's harder to buy because they have a vested interest, and so do the conservatives. Um, I haven't paid attention enough to how the bloc's response has been. Either. They've... When they are talking about it, I mean, I think they're closer to the conservatives than the NDP. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so I guess the only other story on this file this week was this weird one about the speech Aaron O'Toole gave in Parliament about his latest briefing from CSIS. Yeah. Um, so Aaron O'Toole uh, in Parliament says that uh, CSIS uh, gave him a briefing recently and that they found an active campaign of voter suppression by China against him and his party in the uh, 2021 election. This is a little different than kind of what he said earlier, where there'd be like no effect from the interference uh, from what he said, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's weird because we're hearing like his secondhand report of what he was told this past week and so i mean i don't like distrust him of the conservatives i do find him more credible than like if pierre polyev stood up and was like i got briefed by ceases like i feel like ceases doesn't want to talk to him because <laughs> he, he seems like a sieve at this point and refuses to get security clearance whereas aaron o'toole seems like a grown-up well he would have had security clearance because yeah. he was a cabinet minister yeah um Aaron O'Toole alleges CSIS told him about four, quote, categories of threats. Uh, This included the alleged payment to create uh, misinformation targeting him, uh, and as well as amplifying misinformation. Uh, Another category was using WeChat to spread misinformation, and finally, voter suppression efforts against him and one specific candidate in 2021. I think it's kind of like the allegations made in a lot of the past reporting of this, where it's hard to say, and this is part of what David Johnston identifies and others have identified with the challenges of security intelligence is that like 
they can operate off hearsay and allegations, whereas like criminal trials require that higher burden of proof and evidence and even like proper investigations require that. And so, you know, I don't know how, what the, what the level of evidence of these are. And like, like, and, you know, good intelligence products come with uh, certainty ranges on them, but uh, we don't necessarily see that on the reporting when it's being, you know, filtered through things and a couple uh, layers of telephone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I believe that CSIS was aware of things. It's also like, it's so bizarre for CSIS to brief him now. I mean, at least they're briefing someone. Besides, like, the media in secret channels? I Yeah. I mean, they didn't just send an email to a an email account that isn't monitored? <laughs> uh, Bill Blair was testifying, and he's... I, I, I didn't put the story in our show notes, but I read it earlier today that uh, I guess his justification was someone should have printed stuff off and put it in front of him if it was important. Okay, but then, like, (laughs) as the minister, it was his job to get someone to do it. (laughs) It, It's just finger pointing all around. Um, It's awful. Yeah, but man, like, I, I I, I just can't stand the ministers, like, Blaming the people that they are responsible for, for the screw-ups. Like, their whole mm-hmm. point of responsible government is people are, res- the government is responsible for what happens in it. And that means the ministers. So, there we have it up to speed. Everything is still cloudy and murky. And um, people do not have the answers they're hoping for and are mad. So, the story that keeps on giving without uh, giving any info, in a way. God, that's a terrible place to end it. But end it we shall. Unless you got something better. I don't have anything better than that. Oh, cut when it seems appropriate, Jesse. Thanks. <laughs> and that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Palatoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>